Lord, this morning we do desire to lift up your name and glorify you and all that we do and desire that as you have revealed yourself in your word that we would understand and that we would be illumined by your spirit and that you would in fact enable us to find not only application but ways that we could utilize your word to not only grow but also to impact others as well. So this morning as we open it up, we desire to be able to put aside and set aside anything that might distract or any sin that might hinder us from fully benefiting from what you have prepared for us this morning. There's the unconfessed sin that we might confess it now and be in full fellowship with you. So we just commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. I mentioned in the email we're going to have some guests. These are the guests up here. Not quite in the rowdy role, but <laughs> Andrea and Paul, they kind of looking for a place to live. They're homeless right now, right? <laughs> Living in their vehicle. And their two boys, Shane and Luke. <laughs> Homeschooled. Andrea's taking courses from Chaper, taking Greek, along with uh, Jim. So Jim knows Andrea at least, and I got to meet Paul this this week. So behave, right? <laughs> and you all know Jim and Jody. Yeah, for those of you that know us, we, we have an announcement. We're going to be great-grandparents. Great. <laughs> it's about that time, right? Get into the book of Romans. Mention in the email that I'm going to give you a fourth introduction. <laughs> We've looked at an introduction to this passage because it is... Not because it's that difficult, although all of Romans is a little bit more difficult than some books, tends to be more theological, and a lot of terms are used that are unfamiliar with 21st century people, because a lot of churches don't teach theology anymore, or are very light on it. So that's the only thing that really makes Romans difficult, and Paul, in his clarity of thought and logical presentation. Sometimes people get lost in the detail there. So I thought it was good to have a few introductions to this whole concept and to this whole passage, because it's an area that I think a lot of believers within the body of Christ sometimes miss. And I think all of us will be able to identify as we go through some of the passages, different stages in our spiritual growth as well battling with how do you live it? How do you uh, deal with walking in the Lord? What does that mean? Paul uses the theological term sanctification. So we looked at that in some detail last time. I'll give you a quick review of that. So the introduction is basically what Paul gives us. This is Paul's introduction. I gave you three. Paul has just two verses. He's a little shorter than what I tend to be. So we're going to look at verses 1 and 2, where he raises this issue. And if you've been following, you realize that uh, he's writing to believers in the city of Rome. Similar problems as what we face today. Humanity hasn't changed over thousands and thousands of years. So the Romans faced the same issues. They had it a lot harder than we do. 
in a lot of ways in terms of persecution. And in the city of Rome, that's where all of this is set. And I've been stressing that the book of Romans is written to believers, even though it deals with the unbeliever in these early passages that we've been looking at. He's writing so that we as believers can understand how to more effectively minister to those that don't know Christ. So he deals with the unbeliever primarily in the first two chapters and then the middle of chapter three. The major portion of the book, almost eight chapters, except for the introduction, God has provided righteousness right off the bat. Most important word in the book of Romans is righteousness, so we spent some time defining it, looking at it carefully. We don't think in terms of some of these biblical ideas, but it's basically a right standing before God. And he starts off with letting us know that no one has that right standing. In fact, our greatest efforts are like filthy rags, using Isaiah's phrase. And one of the larger subsections of the whole book, chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, deals with that because our hearts are resistant to that concept. The unbeliever is resistant to that concept. And when you're sharing the gospel, that's the area that you almost have to spend more time in and be more careful with because most people do not want to admit that they are unrighteous and therefore stand condemned before a holy God. So once he lays out the problem, then he gives us the solution in chapter 3, 21 through the end of chapter 5. And he uses the word justification. So what does justification mean? So we looked at that term in some detail. Every theological word comes out of the culture, out of everyday living. This one comes out of the legal system of not only first century, but most other times as well. So it's a legal term, as well as many of the other terms. Even righteousness is a legal term as well. So justification is God providing righteousness, not through anything we do, that was the stress, but it's simply by faith and faith alone, justification by faith. So this is the central passage that deals with that. And I stressed chapter 5 is kind of a transition from justification to this next major section we call sanctification. So I see it like a transition, and that deal, sanctification deals with chapter 6 through 8, and we'll get started in it this morning. So the first 11 verses of chapter 5, after he's laid out this doctrine, in fact, how does he start out? Therefore, having been justified by faith, now that I've kind of explained that, Paul is saying, and now that you understand that he's addressing believers. So those of you that have experienced justification, now he lays out many of the benefits in order to motivate us to live it out. So it's transitional and it's more, I think, motivational. So we have the prophet. And I use that word because I was alliterating with the other P words. So the prophet or the benefits that we have gained as a result of trusting in Jesus Christ. And then a very important passage, very theological, sometimes a little bit difficult. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 12 through 21, there are two parts to it. He talks about this reign of sin. And why 
kind of emphasize the idea. It's like rulership. In Adam, in fact, he goes all the way back to Adam. Adam, as a result of his sin, imposed upon all of humanity, all of his descendants. We're all related to Adam. So we all are related to one another. And we share his DNA, you could say. We share his characteristics, his nature, and we stand condemned and sin and death reign in the unbeliever. So he's transitioning in order to talk about another issue, another option that only those that trust in Christ have. So the major barrier between man and God is this state of unrighteousness, this reign of sin and death. But there's a solution. There's a reign of grace that's possible. So in the latter part of 12 through 21, I think, what is it, 18, where he begins the reign of grace, and it's the basis. That's why it's transitional. And he's transitioning from our position of justification, where we have sin forgiven and righteousness declared. We are declared righteous, not made righteous. Now he's going to show us how we can now begin to grow in righteousness, <coughs> develop righteousness, and that's the topic of sanctification 6 through 8. So this reign of grace, and one of the first principles we'll look at here, is the concept of grace. Just as justification, we've stressed, justification is by grace, that's the basis of it. We receive it through faith, and because it's grace, it's undeserved. And because it's grace, there's nothing that we can do to earn it. It's a gift. That's the idea of grace. And once we have received it, now we continue in it. And sanctification, we're going to see, is also on the basis of grace. So the first principle is there's grace available not only for justification, but there's grace available for sanctification as well. So going back to chapter 5, just a quick review here. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Now, he's not saying that now the law makes you sin more. But what does it do? Make you aware of sin because of the hardness of our heart. We don't even know what sin is. It's kind of normal. It's natural to us as unbelievers. So when the law came in, Paul says, now it makes me aware of what sin is all about, and it condemns me. So the more I know of God's standards revealed through his law, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, increase in our awareness primarily. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, as evil as we could be, God has grace that is available to no matter how depraved we end up. And even the more so, the more grace is available in uh, God's overall plan. So where sin increased in terms of not only its reality, but in terms of our realization, now there's this stark contrast in what God has provided He's provided grace and it's abounded. So verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death. Now that's very important. We're going to come back to that. We're going to talk a little bit today about death. What does the Bible mean when it uses death? The word death. What does the Bible mean when it talks about sin? We've already looked at that one. In fact, we've looked at both concepts. Sin reigning. 
The word there is the common word for what a ruler does, a king or any, a governor or any official that reigns or has authority over a domain. In a similar way, sin has its domain and we're in that kingdom of sin, kingdom of darkness, Paul describes it as. And we're subjects to sin and death. We have no options except for Jesus Christ. Even so, again, grace would reign. There's another option for the believer. There's another realm that we can enter into. Now, he's already described all that. We enter in by trusting what Jesus has done. We receive justification. And elsewhere, Paul says, we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into what? The kingdom of light. Totally different realm. Totally different administration, you might say. Totally different reign, a reign of grace. And it's through righteousness, and that righteousness is what? He's not spelling it out here, but it's been clear before. Imputed from what Christ has done for us to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I'm not going to go into the detail, but we stress what he's talking about, this eternal life. He's not talking about that future eternal life. He's talking about eternal life here and now from the context. Remember, I gave you some detail on that. This is transitioning to experiencing, instead of death in the Christian life, which we can, now we have the new option of experiencing life, and it's eternal life, here and now. Okay? And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the key. So that's kind of the background And that basically introduces us to the first principle of sanctification. Or if you want to use a more common idea, living the Christian life. That's the essence of sanctification. Being set apart for a particular purpose that we can now live, not only in a different realm, but have a different source of enablement. So if you just look ahead, you're going to see a stress on grace, well, let's look back first of all, just to remind us in 324, being justified, 324, as a gift, in other words, it's freely given by his grace, undeserved, nothing we can do to earn it, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So justification is through grace. But now, notice in chapter 6, look at 14, you can skip down, well, he's going to mention it earlier as well, uh, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? I'm going to come back to that. So he's talking about grace, relating to what he said in chapter 5. And, and then you skip down to verse 14. For sin shall not be master or Lord over you like a king. It's not to reign. For you are not under law, but under grace. So sanctification is related to grace as well. And then 15. What then shall we sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace. There's grace again. So grace is available. There's another verse in there that has grace again. At any rate, this is the starting point for sanctification is to recognize that it's the same grace that God has made available in terms of salvation. In fact, there's a close relationship between justification 
and sanctification. And I'm going to remind you of what we talked about last time, that relationship. So, But that's the first principle. To keep in mind this whole idea of grace. Because the, the tendency of our heart is what? Well, yeah, but what else? In terms of interacting with God and trying to live the Christian life. We want to do something. The unbeliever, exactly, thinks in terms of, well, maybe I need to go to church more. Maybe I need to think in terms of doing good works. This will please God. Well, we carry that same mentality and try to live the Christian life. Too simple. It's too, it doesn't seem right that it's a gift. I received salvation, we think in a believer, but now I have to kind of pay God back somehow. Or have to please him in some way. So it goes against that idea. It's still by grace as well. And we'll see that as we develop the passage itself. So that's the first principle. And by the way, I've got those on your outline sheet, so we'll follow it. So we have condemnation, we have justification, and now we're looking at sanctification, the beginning of chapter 6. So six one. what shall we say then? This comes right after chapter 5, so it's related to what he's just been talking about. He's talking about this reign of sin and the greater reign of grace. So that leads to what was a common issue and is even common today. Basically, now what do we do now that we have received this justification? So the last part of the verse... Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? So he just raises the question, and what he's doing is raising the whole new area dealing with sanctification. So what shall we say in light of all that he's talked about before? So what we have, just kind of an overview of the whole passage, we have justification that leads to sanctification, (laughs) six through eight, and there's three parts to it. This is... Kind of reminding you, this is a little bit of review here. Chapter 6, he's going to lay out the principles dealing with sanctification. Now, he's going to expand upon those and add to them, but uh, the focus of chapter 6 are principles, and then he's going to deal with what is our natural tendency. It's legalism. And or the alternative is uh, free living, or what's the word for it? My mind's going blank. Lasciviousness. Hedonism. I can't remember words longer than two syllables. So. <laughs> That's our tendency, either to go to one end or the other end, and we, what was the word you used? Hedonism. That's kind of lasciviousness, yeah. Well, it's self-indulgence. Self-indulgence, exactly. Those are our tendencies. So in chapter 7, he's going to deal with those issues. He's going to deal with the issue of Well, do I just now come up with a list of commandments now that I need to obey? And when we do that, we always come up with as short a list as we can, right? (laughs) So that we can check off all those boxes. Oh, okay, but this guy over here, he can't make it, but I can make out my five check boxes here. So we either develop pride, or if we have six boxes, uh uh-oh, now I feel condemned. So how do we deal with this whole issue of... Are we to just be more obedient, more committed, uh, more willpower? So he's going to deal with that in chapter 7. Those are the problems. But instead, there's an alternative, and this is by grace. He's provided the power to be able to live the Christian life. That's the focus of chapter 8. 
So that's an overview of the whole passage. Now, another review here. These are the terms that we looked at last time. Since Paul uses the word sanctification, some translations call it holiness. So it's related to the idea of holiness. We went through these last time because sometimes in the English, we we need more than one word. So we think in terms of, well, maybe these words are different. And I went through the, the word group, and there's a whole word group in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word group, kadash. Kodesh is a word related to it. And in Hebrew, you have the three consonants that are the same. This is the verbal form, kadash. Now, I didn't put the pointing on there. It just basically means to set something apart. And in fact, all of the words related to that have this basic idea. Now, the word group in the New Testament, hagias, hagias, with the, my computer doesn't have the rough breathing, in case you're wondering, so I have to use the accent. But there's a, kind of a little, like an accent that in Greek gives you the H sound, so it starts with an H in English. But this word group, there's different forms or different related words to this whole word group. All of them are related to sanctification. Now, they're translated in different ways. That's why sometimes we get confused. And some of them, like the first one, what is holiness? Or what is holy? That's the word that's translated holy. But in some places, it's translated saint. Are these two different words? How are they related? The basic idea, something that is described as habias, is something that is set apart. And like I said, every theological word comes from everyday situations. And I used the illustration last time. All of you women have special dishes that you have set apart. Gave you the photograph of the cabinet of your nice fine china. You use it only on Thanksgiving or birthdays or special occasions. You have set those dishes apart. And I gave you the illustration of what some men do. They have this nice shiny car in the garage. I didn't reproduce them. So... We have the idea of setting things apart. And God in the Old Testament wanted to give an illustration of that as well so that the children of Israel would understand that they are a people set apart. So their whole system is designed to convey the way they're to be, that to live is different from the rest of the world because they are related to him. So he set the whole nation apart. We looked at those verses. They're a people set apart. The whole word group has that essence to it. The idea of set apart also for a purpose, to serve him, to glorify him. So when he sets up the temple, there's bread. It's called what? Holy bread. Baked in the same way as other bread, same ingredients. There's nothing magical or nothing strange about it other than this loaf is prepared for a special place, and it has a particular purpose. So all of the utensils, they're holy. The tabernacle (laughs) is holy. These are just set apart. It doesn't mean that there's some mysterious, mystical something about them that makes them different. It's the idea of something set apart. So when it speaks of individuals, you could even translate the same word, holy ones, And I said we have a lot of confusion concerning saints, and I kind of used this illustration last time. (laughs) 
a holy one has a halo, you know. And this week I found another one here uh, on the Drudge Report. <laughs> the point that Drudge was making is Zuckerberg has kind of set himself apart and made himself kind of above everyone else, so he puts a halo around him. So there's this confusion concerning the meaning of this word, and if you come from a Roman Catholic background, you think in terms of somebody that is just super dedicated, super ritualistic, performed a few miracles on the side, and given a few hundred years, people recognize, oh, there's Saint whoever, and I gave you, what, Saint Nicholas or something last time. But these words, pardon me? A super doer. Yeah, super doer. That's yeah. a good way of putting it. So a saint, you are saints. So you could put your, you could put your, your name and your photograph in that one. Because you are simply one that God has called to himself and set you apart in order that he may work through you and use you for a particular purpose. So the idea is something set apart. And we have the word form, hagiazo. This is the word that is sometimes translated to sanctify. In other words, to make something set apart. Or you might see it as something holy, if you have the idea of holiness as something set apart. To make holy, or to set something apart, to sanctify. Or in some translations, to consecrate. And in English, we use all of these words, so we get kind of a little confused as to their meaning. They all have the same idea, the same word group. Something set apart for a special use. And in this case, for God's use, in terms of theologically. And then the word sanctification is the same word group. Same word group. And sometimes it's translated holiness, and the English translates Paul in... Chapter 6, the sanctification. This is verse, what was it, 19 and 21, I believe. All right? So, how does this relate to us in terms of living? Well, all of us are born physically. I think everybody's eyes are open, so you look alive today. But that is a physical birth. And when we are born, what Paul says at the end of chapter 5 is, what's our basic condition at birth, even at conception, you might even say. Dead, okay, that's a good way of describing it. Spiritually dead. We're breathing, our heart is beating. The Bible describes us as being dead. This is a biblical concept of deadness. And as a result of that deadness, in terms of our relationship to God, we stand condemned. Every unbeliever from birth until a particular event takes place, we call that Spiritual birth. And this comes from Jesus himself. Unless a man is born again, using the imagery of physical birth, now there has to be a spiritual birth. Unless a man is born again, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. And then obviously all of us have a lifespan, so I've got a timeline there, and we all die physically. So there's a physical death. Now, when you come to the scriptures, you need to look at the passages where the word dying or death, the noun form or the verb form, and see the context. Sometimes there are passages, and there's several of them, that deal with physical death. But probably the majority, and particularly in these passages, I'm going to come back to this, particularly in chapters 5 and 6, 
Paul is talking about a different kind of death. A death where you are still breathing and your heart is still pumping. Okay, so at spiritual birth, the theological word is justification. So justification has the same idea of the moment of salvation or another biblical word, redemption. The beginning of redemption, Paul uses justification. Same idea, different theological words. Once we are justified, now we want to live the life. Paul uses the word sanctification. We want to set ourselves apart because God has already set us apart in order for a particular purpose. So we have a new purpose for living, new attitude towards life. In fact, we have life now. So we call that sanctification, and that goes on until when? Actually, it goes beyond that. Yep, it goes beyond that. Now, our life can have ups and downs, and I'm talking about our relationship to God, so we have kind of a jagged line. Hopefully, it's an upward direction, but that's not guaranteed. Some people crater as believers, and there's such a thing in, in the Bible as a sin unto death where a person's life is so useless that God will just take them as believers. Look at the end of James and I think passage in First uh, Peter as well. So it's not guaranteed, but hopefully it's, you know, it's, a, it's an up and down, but hopefully it's in a positive direction. But sanctification goes beyond this life where it's completed. Paul uses the word glorification. And I gave you uh, Romans 8.30 where he uses that word as well. And if you notice that verse, it's in the past tense. From God's perspective, we are already there because he's going to get us glorified. Now, when you speak of sanctification, you can also view justification as the first stage of sanctification, but you can even go beyond that. I think the doctrine of election says that even before the foundation of the earth, God, in his mind and in his plan, has already set us apart for his purpose. That's the idea of God choosing doctrine of election. Let me summarize what we looked at last time. So God loves sinners just as we are. Remember the song? It's biblical. He loves sinners just as we are. Because of that, he has provided a means by which we can have a relationship with him. We call that justification. That's the initial stage of being set apart in terms of our experience. The moment we trusted in him, now we have experienced something of this setting apart process. Secondly, not only does God love the sinner just as we are, but God refuses to leave us just as we are. You see that? He's going to take us. In fact, the good work that he began, what? Philippians, Philippians 1. Yeah, he will complete it. So he's going to not leave us there. So he refuses to leave us just as we are. That's sanctification. That's the process of us growing to be more and more like him. So sanctification is the next stage, you might say, or the long-range lifetime stage of being set apart for change. It's the process of changing us into his image, a key passage, Romans 12, 1 and 2, to be useful for his purpose. Connie. 
on the last slide was that sanctification is beyond physical. Do you mean into the millennium? Or how do you mean that? Like, what was your inference? You're always one step ahead of me. Okay. <laughs> that was the last slide. <laughs> I'm going to show you another slide. <laughs> I'm going to answer a question in the next slide, okay? So, sanctification, to describe it, it's a process where God is changing us into his image. That's where he's making us more like him, more righteous. Jesus Christ is ultimately and perfectly righteous, but we were not transformed immediately in terms of our experience. We are declared righteous at justification, And from God's perspective, he views us as just as righteous as Jesus Christ, but we know that we still have inclination to sin. And in fact, that's the topic of chapter 6 through 8, where how do we deal with that? Mary Lee? So is that what all of the rituals of purification throughout... In Israel? In Israel, I mean, there was always a process. You didn't go from being here, being unclean, to being over here holy before God. Everything took a whole process, and there were things. A lot of visuals, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they were designed to kind of implant in the minds of the Jewish people. They are separate. They are different. They're supposed to reflect that. And in reflecting it, they will glorify God. And the same principle applies to the believer We call it sanctification. In fact, you could apply it also in the Old Testament as well. The process where God is changing us to make us useful. Because it's always a process, though. Yep. Sanctification. Yeah. Okay. And God is going to complete that process. There's the passage I referred to, uh, starting with verse 28, 8, 28 through 30. And we call that glorification. And Connie, there it is. Set apart for eternity. And in eternity, we're not just going to sit around plucking harps on clouds, as is the common image, but what are we going to do, in e- even in eternity? Learn more about God. We're not only going to learn more, but what? Glorify. We're going to continue to serve Him and glorify Him. And there's going to be lots to do in eternity. We can't even imagine all the things that God has planned and prepared for us. And we're set apart... Now, in that case, we're like the angels. There's there's angels that are set apart as well. There's holy angels. Remember, we looked at that passage last time. They are set apart, and it has nothing to do with growing. It has everything to do with continually serving, and we will be continually set apart as well. Does that answer your question, Connie? So glorification, the process of removing sin is completed. In fact, it's removed, eradicated at that point. But we continue to have a purpose even into eternity, so we are continually set apart. And I think we're eternally set apart. Mary Lee? I was just going to say, so we're more than just set apart, but we're set apart for good works that we don't even know about. Yes, so right. It, there's, there's, it's not just set apart like my dishes sit and I don't use them for a year because right. no one is deemed worthy. <laughs> In my eyes. <laughs> In fact, uh, look up Ephesians 2.10. And this is right after the passage where he's explained how we come into a relationship to Jesus Christ by grace, through faith. And the last verse in that paragraph, Connie? I think we were saying not just set apart in a discussion last night. Someone mentioned that 
everyone has eternity. Yes. Right. So we're all set apart. Right. Right. It's just a matter of will. Exactly. Exactly. Did you got it? I do. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I always thought that was just a, a temporal thing, but that's an eternal thing. I think so. But it's primarily in that context referring to now that I have a relationship with God, he has things, and using your own terminology, Mary Lee, there are things even in this life that we don't know that God has prepared for us. He doesn't know individuals that we will share the gospel with maybe tomorrow, maybe next month, or maybe, I don't want to say too long, because <laughs> maybe 10 years from now. So glorification is the completion. Jim. Also, in that eternal time, uh, as far as the process of growth, doesn't involve uh, battle with our sin nature or battle with yeah. the powers in high places. Yeah, exactly. So... Yeah, yeah. There's in fact the Christian life is a minefield. It's a it's a battlefield. Exactly. So looking at it from the perspective of sanctification, we could say spiritual birth is equivalent. It's it's justification, but it's you could look at it as positional sanctification. And I gave you some of those verses. Remember, he describes the Corinthians as already sanctified, and yet in the book he talks about. One of the members having an incestuous relationship and the passage clearly indicates that that's, that's a believer. Uh, they were suing one another. They were into idolatry. They were, there were division, all these problems of the church at Corinth. And yet he calls them in verse one saints, holy ones. That's positional because they're saved. And at the moment of salvation, we are set apart. So we can call that we're positional sanctification. And then there's the ultimate, and notice I've got a star up there. We're not going to reach the star in this life, but God's going to complete that and make us perfectly like Jesus Christ. Totally removes the sin nature. We call that glorification, or you could describe it as ultimate sanctification. And that's why eternal life is eternal, because it takes eternity to get there. Well, no, it's going to be instantaneous. When we die, we will be be instantaneously glorified. We will be glorified, but we will not be instantaneously like Christ. Mm. That's a process. We will never be. No, no, no. I don't. I I don't think so. After we're dead, I I don't. I think the. I think it's completed. We will continue to be set apart and useful because we're already declared just as righteous as Jesus Christ right now and i think at glorification we i yeah we'll talk about it okay in between positional and ultimate is what we might describe as progressive because there's a process or you might call it experiential in other words we can grow and experience sanctification got it key terms Sanctification set apart for a purpose. We'll develop further into that. So we've looked at the issue raised, or we started to look at it. Let's continue in 6, 1 through 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And I'm not going to even get through verses 1 and 2 today, but that's fine. We'll pick up where we leave off next week. What does it mean to continue in sin? And here's where Christians get confused. 
Paul already is laying out what this whole process of sanctification is. He's saying it's not continuing in sin. In other words, continuing in sin goes against the whole idea. He's going to answer that in verse 2. He's going to ask the question, it does not mean that we will not be tempted anymore. And by the way, there are some theological positions that go in that direction. Remember I mentioned perfectionism in one of the introductions I gave you. That's not true. We will continually be tempted as long as we are in sinful bodies. There are some that say, well, you should get to a point where you no longer sin, at least like before you were a believer. That also is not true. We can do even worse sin because we have that same capacity, the same nature as before. We'll talk about that and the problem in chapter 7. So that's not true. Verse doesn't say no longer to sin. In other words, it doesn't have the idea that we don't sin anymore. But continue what? In sin. And I'm not going to have time to develop it, but I'm going to develop this idea that sin in this context, it's singular for one thing, and it has the article before it. In fact, the article occurs 25 times, starting in chapter 5 through chapter 8. And with the article, you could even translate it, continue in the sin. And as as singular, it's referring to a particular sin, and it's probably referring to the sin nature, or that sin potential. Not sins in the plural, but who we are in the old nature. We're going to develop all of this later on. So it's no longer, it's not no longer to sin at all, but no longer to continue, and that's key as well, in that state that we are before we trust in Jesus Christ. So it doesn't have the idea of the sin nature being eradicated. That's perfectionism. They have to downgrade sin to come up with that theological position. So the sin nature is not eradicated. What does it mean? Well, continue, the Greek word, epimeno, to remain in the same place. Now, this word has a everyday sense, and it's used, Paul uses that same word when he says we stayed at a certain location in its everyday literal way. In fact, there are several references, some of them... Paul was with Peter in Galatians, and he said, we stayed with him 15 days. In other words, they stayed with Cephas. Paul stayed with him 15 days. So it has that idea of staying in one place, literally. Later on, Paul is with Luke at Tyre. He's with Luke, and they stayed at, at Tyre. They stayed at Caesarea. Then later on, on the way to Rome, they stayed in different places. But it also has this more metaphorical use or non-literal way of persisting in something or staying in a same kind of a situation or condition remaining. So that's the idea of the word to continue here. So the believer should not continue, in other words, stay without growing, basically. Stay as he was before he was a believer in sin in that state or condition. Yes, there'll be ups and downs. Yes, there'll be setbacks. Yes, we will sin. But we are also, God has provided a means by which we can recover. And the growth should be somewhat upward rather than 
uh, cratering or anything else. Sin, as I mentioned, here's the literal Greek. It has the article before, the te, hamartia, two words, has the article from uh, chapter 5, verse 20 to 8, 3. Sin is in the singular with the article 25 times. And this is somewhat unique. There's another passage where you have the same construction, and it probably is referring, with the C, it's referring to a particular condition, not sins, not plural. And it probably has a reference of the sin nature, and in this context, he just finished chapter 5, dealing with Adam. So it's the sin nature or the sin capacity, the sin inclination that we inherited from Adam. And this is going to be the issue in this passage, the sin or sin nature from Adam. Yeah, I noticed, too, that uh, in contrast to that, when you get to verse 15, he leaves the article out. And there he's speaking about our personal sins in that one, in contrast to everything to that. Yes, very good point. Where is that, Jim? Verse 15. Five. Uh, 6.15. 6.15, yeah. 6.15. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue in, you could even insert, the sin, so that grace may increase? And the answer is what? Maybe? (laughs) Perhaps? Is that the answer? May it never be. And the rest of the passage is going to explain. In fact, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Next week, I'm going to develop this concept. What does he mean by dying to sin? And I'm going to, I was going to give you the biblical concept of death, but we've run out of time. But just to kind of conclude it here, meganoito is the Greek there. This is the strongest kind of construction in the Greek language that basically says, not maybe, but may it never be is the way that it's translated. Some commentators describe it as away with the thought. Others describe it as banish the thought. In other words, this is totally out of sync. Or let not such a thing be considered. It also has this idea of let it not be conceived of. Don't even think about it. Should we continue in sin? Or perish the idea. Be it not so. Just emphasizing here. Paul's strong negation. Impossible. Good heavens, no. My translation is, are you crazy? (laughs) Absolutely not. Remember, we already looked at this, so I've kind of gone through it quickly here. May genoito. But he's going to answer it. How shall we, and this is the answer, how shall we who died to the sin? And by the way, when we're talking about death, we're talking about a particular death as well in this context. It's also related to Adam. The sin and the death that came with it, they kind of go together. It's related to Adam. How shall we still live in it? Just a quick overview here. The word death is used in at least three major ways. Physical death, body separation, physical death. I'll expand this next week. The second death, separation into eternity from God. And then what I describe as this comprehensive spiritual death. We're still breathing. Our hearts are still pumping. For some of you slowly, some of you more rapidly. So 
What is this death? And that's the death that he's talking about here. It involves the whole person. And remember, I gave you all these categories. It involves spiritual separation, intellectual, moral, emotional, social. I'll give you that next week. It involves our purpose. And then it also involves the physical. It's kind of this comprehensive idea. We'll, we'll develop that next time. Who wants to close for us? Great. You, you came in last, so you get to close. <laughs> Uh, Father, thank you uh, for for your word, and, and uh, we just we just pray what you have promised that uh, that the reading of your scriptures will not go away, boy. That uh, we will learn and we will share from it. And so we claim that promise. We acknowledge that you are God, Lord. That uh, you are in control. You know all things, Lord. Let us let us just follow you. Let us pray for this uh, Sunday school class. You would, you would bless us. That you would lead us.